Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Ying Yi An Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Coolabar Capital and Spider Money Investments. And Ying is joined by Christopher Joy. Uh, I'm a Portfolio Manager at Coolabar and SMI and Chief Investment Officer. So in today's episode, we will talk about what's happened in bond markets in July and August, our views on the latest trade war dramas, why the best global investors are seeking the advice of shrinks to get a psychological edge, why Aussie corporate and financial bonds have systematically paid higher outright credit spreads than offshore credit before currency hedging, Magellan's revolutionary decision to dump conflicted sales commissions on their funds and what this means for LICs and LITs, Westpac's victory over ASIC on responsible lending and the power of questioning the consensus. So Chris, why don't you tell us a bit about what's happening in markets at the moment? Sure, Ying is, yeah, July was a sensational month for returns in our own strategies. The active composite bond strategy we run, which is in uh, Mercer's fixed interest universe, Aussie fixed interest universe, that had one of its better months ever. Uh, it was up 171 basis points or 1.71% before fees compared to the composite bond index's 95 basis points. So we outperformed by 76 basis points. Over the last year, our active composite bond strategies returned 14.3% before fees compared to the comp bond index's 10.4%. So we've outperformed by 3.9%. I should stress this is an institutional only product. It's not available publicly. And we quote returns pre-fees because those fee terms are confidential. We also run, uh, that's a long duration uh, strategy, we also run a a zero duration strategy, which we call the uh, active credit alpha strategy. And that also had a very strong month, up 126 basis points in July. And over the last 12 months, uh, that's pre-fees, it's returned 10.8% before fees. Uh, Its benchmark is bank bills plus 350, uh, which represented a 5.5% return over the same period. Our public offer strategies, which are available at uh, smitrust.com.au. They include two cash plus products, Smarter Money Active Cash and Smarter Money Higher Income and Smarter Money Long Short Credit. They also had strong returns in July. In fact, our active cash strategy had its best month, I think since March 2016. Obviously, you need to read the PDSs, uh, understand the risks, and we naturally know that past performance is of no guide to future returns. In August, it's been quite different. We've seen spreads move wider. The Osbond floating rate node index is actually down very slightly, negative four basis points in the month. On the other hand, durations rallied, so the comp bond index is up another 128 basis points. And that's really been a function of uh, the choppy trade war dynamics with Trump unilaterally announcing tariffs, and obviously we've seen tit-for-tat responses from the Chinese. So Chris, back in May, we argued that there was every chance the US and China would never resolve a trade deal and that America's strategic priority was, in fact, to use tariffs as a tool to shift its critical supply chains away from its premier geopolitical foe. This reflected the insight that there was an emerging consensus in Washington that decades of trying to positively encourage China to play by the rules of the Western liberal democratic trading regime have not worked and moreover are never likely to do so. According to this hawkish view, best articulated by Trump's former 
advisor Steve Bannon, China is hell-bent on securing global supremacy through relentlessly cheating by furnishing its superficially private companies with unassailable competitive advantages, including ultra-low-cost funding and state-backed industrial espionage. China cannot therefore be trusted to be the benign and trustworthy partner that many had previously hoped it would become. Yeah, Ying Yi, it's never been entirely clear whether a fickle and capricious President Trump really subscribes unconditionally to this hawkish project to push trade away from China towards more friendly actors, or if he's more taken by the alternative Goldman Sachs consensus, as we've coined it, that um, really argues a deal should be done to say to markets which want to, according to this view, myopically eliminate all forms of external risk, irrespective of the long-term consequences. I think here judging Trump on his actions is pretty illuminating. No deal has been done, and none looks likely to be forthcoming in the near term. Instead, Trump's slapped 25% tariffs on roughly a third to one half of all Chinese exports to the US and is about to slug the remaining two thirds with a 10% tax, although you know, we know that after announcing this, he's deferred it to December. Importantly, these tariffs are doing precisely what Bannon's Hawks had in mind. China has slumped from being number one on the list of America's top trading partners to number three, ranking behind more pliable and proximate counterparties like Mexico and Canada, which obviously have no problems adhering to the rules of that Western liberal democratic model that you refer to. So, you know, we've started thinking that this could well be the end of the road as far as the current trade war is concerned. And what I mean by that is a semi-permanent stalemate between the two would-be global hegemons, with the hawks prevailing in their efforts to permanently shift the global centre of economic gravity away from the Middle Kingdom. And I guess here Trump can claim victory for being tough on his chief adversary, which is important because he is striking an essential contrast with his likely electoral opponent, Joe Biden, who claims China is not a rival. At the same time, Trump can talk about the fact that the US Treasury is banking uh, reportedly more than 100 billion US dollars annually in tariff revenues, which he constantly crows about. Trump can also take credit for strong-arming the US Federal Reserve into cutting interest rates at least twice this year and completely reversing course from its plans at the end of 2018, which I think will play well with Main Street. And with global central banks now all seemingly trying to outdo one another with their efforts to preemptively get ahead of um, these nebulous economic risks and elongate the current business cycle, it is plausible, I think, that um, the rally, the kind of secular market rally that we've had for several years now, extends firmly into 2020 as global activity recovers on the back of uh, yet another wave of unexpected stimulus. I think we are of the view that both the Fed and the ECB will cut in September, with the ECB likely to start or restart aggressive asset purchases or quantitative easing or QE to bid up bond prices and reduce yields. And we've seen this month central banks in New Zealand, Thailand and India and India, sorry, getting ahead of the curve uh, with their own surprisingly large interest rate cuts. In Australia, the market's pricing in an RBA rate cut by October, 
And if this comes to pass, we will be one step closer to a local form of quantitative easing or QE, given the obstacle of a terminal cash rate around 0.5%, beyond which banks will pass on no further cuts to borrowers. Yes, Chris, we first canvassed the possibility of Aussie QE back in May 2019, before the recent RBA rate cuts, and it has since become a fashionable topic for fund managers and, and economists to opine on. It should not, however, necessarily be perceived as a dramatic or revolutionary change in monetary policy. QE is about enabling the RBA to exercise influence over a wider range of interest rates than just its overnight cash rate when seeking to adjust savings and loan rates across the economy. This broader universe of target rates include government bond yields, bank bond yields and other related borrowing rates that determine a bank's cost of funding and hence the price of money it calibrates via deposits and loans. By its own account, the RBA believes that it has already engaged in QE in the past, expanding its balance sheet by 50% during the 2008 crisis as it massively ramped up its direct lending to banks via longer-term repurchase or repo agreements. All of this means that investors need to come to grips with term deposit rates that are going to be less than 1.5% and thus well below their cost of living. This will self-evidently make other higher yielding asset classes more attractive. In our own markets, we have certainly observed a dramatic increase in the intensity of the, you know, at times irrational, search for yield. And it is reasonable to assume that this will continue with gusto in the period ahead if volatility normalises and the reach for income reasserts itself. One chart that is fascinating on this front is a comparison of the credit spread on Australian corporate bonds, as proxied by the iTrax Australia Credit Default Swap Index, with cash or risk-free rates as represented by five-year government bond yields. While you don't have this graph in front of you, what we can see is that the ratio of credit spreads to cash rates has never been as high as it is currently, other than in the middle of the 2008 crisis. Every single time this ratio has spiked materially, credit has embarked on a huge rally, i.e. spreads have compressed, which must now be at least one plausible contingency in the period ahead. Now, Chris, you recently wrote about how art is imitating life via Showtime's hit TV series, Billions, which does a brilliant job at sketching the rich spectrum of personalities that gravitate to the fast-paced, ruthless world of hedge funds. Tell us about that. Sure, Yingers. If there is one constant across the best investors that I know, it is undoubtedly idiosyncrasy. And it requires a special fusion of analysis, intuition, conviction, and frankly, belligerence to bet against the collective might of markets and consistently prevail over the long run. As much as I'm personally very fond of many of them, the fact is that there are some truly weird units amongst the ranks of Australia's best investors. And if they're not outright oddbods, then they definitely possess an insatiable curiosity, dogged tenacity, and I would say relentless faith that sets them apart. Now, here I'm thinking of you know, the macro maven David Haynes, the rates trader Richard Farley, private equity pioneer Tim Sims, the former prop trader Shane Finnamore, and equities junkies like 
Rob Ronan Luciano, uh, his partner, Doug Babyface Tynan, Roger Montgomery, our Bondi neighbour here, Yingers, John the Spectrum Hempton, and the infamous, and I really mean infamous, Troika of Aboods. The master waterboarder, my good mate, Russell uh, Abood. His Yasser Arafat lookalike brother, Stephen, a.k.a. the Sheik Abood. And the younger cousin, the young gun, Anthony, a.k.a. the Spud uh, Abood, to name just a few. So the challenge for any hedge fund founder with bona fide edge is to institutionalize their alpha which I thinking is given its origins in you know, the unpredictable human condition is inherently difficult. One way to try to do this is by building a team of talent around you that empowers, um, perpetuates and amplifies that alpha. However, you know, managing exceptionally gifted individuals is no easy task. It's akin to herding cats. Uh, I've learned that the hard way, unfortunately. Most of the folks in my own team of 12 portfolio managers and analysts are very wonky, to put it nicely, with backgrounds in astrophysics, engineering, mathematics, statistics, economics. I could go on. If you walk into our little abode, actually there are three abodes because we've got two Sydney offices and one Melbourne office, but it really does resemble a scene from Revenge of the Nerds. There are no fancy suits. There are no big wig trader egos. It's just a very quiet, church-like environment where everyone is engaged in a search for the truth. When it comes to managing quants, I've learned that all roads really lead to personality. Uh, it's easy to recruit academically exceptional staff like yourself, Yingers. It is much harder to identify those who can seamlessly subordinate their egos to the team's mission, render consistently actionable insights, and positively contribute to the welfare of their colleagues. <clears throat> and if there's one thing my team knows, it's that I care about them because I'm constantly contacting them 24-7. They're literally getting our emails at all hours of the day and night. Now, Billions, the, the Showtime show you referred to, Yingers, is based on the trials and tribulations of its main character, Bobby Axelrod, um, who was modelled on the infamous tape-reading hedgy Stevie Cohen. In a recent interview, Cohen quipped, quote, this is a seven-day-a-week job, and I could not agree more. I'm not sure all my team necessarily agrees with me all the time. But the truth is, with all the focus on this BS work-life balance... And the sense of entitlement millennials carry, few are prepared to make the sacrifices required to win on a global stage. And to your point, Chris, to better exploit their human capital, US hedges have started harnessing in-house psychologists. In billions, these shrinks are portrayed via two striking characters, the silky smooth Wendy Rhodes and the samurai warrior Dr. Gus. Yeah, that's right, Yingers. And Australia has... It's own emerging hybrid of these characters in the psychologist Harry Moffat, who's a 20-year veteran of the Special Air Service Regiment, or the SAS, who founded the high-performance consultancy Stoughton Group that helps businesses, hedge funds, and sporting teams, quote, grow cultures. Now, Moffat was not originally a psych. Most of his time in the SAS was spent 
as a warfighter or operator, completing 11 combat tours in Afghanistan, Iraq, and East Timor, and almost a thousand days on the tours. Later in his SAS career, he led the unit's high performance cell that resulted in significant changes in how the SAS selected, managed, and transitioned operators through years of service and then ultimately back into the civilian world. When Moffat started as a Special Forces soldier, the emphasis was on optimizing physiological performance. Yet as this lemon was squeezed as far as practically possible, the crosshairs shifted to maximizing cognitive results. Now the Victoria Cross winner and SAS soldier, Mark Dono Donaldson, introduced me to Harry in 2015 when I was actually trying to find a way to philanthropically contribute to the unit. Dono explained that the biggest challenge SAS soldiers face is actually transitioning back into civilian life after years of honing very valuable yet highly specialized skill sets. Sadly in 2008 Harry had been wounded in action in Afghanistan by an IED and he was repatriated to Australia. The doctors at the time told him that he would likely lose his leg due to very bad infection. It was during this time when he was contemplating amputation and what he'd do next that Harry came up with the idea of the need to preemptively equip soldiers with the education they require to seamlessly assimilate back into the community. So Harry and I hit it off like a house on fire and he needed $60,000 to fund the first pilot program which was going to underwrite uh, six scholarships for SAS soldiers at the University of Western Australia. So I brought in my mates Todd Bennett, uh, the founder of AMB Capital, and VGI's incredibly generous Rob Luciano. The Wanderers Education Program was thereafter spawned as a new charity inside the SAS Resources Fund. And with the help of uh, folks like the superstar financial advisor, Chris Gano, and many other generous donors, including Platinum's Kerr Nielsen, the Melbourne-based Haynes family, the Victor Smorgan Group, Andrew Burns, and the Sydney fund manager, Roger Montgomery, amongst others. Wanderers has raised 2 to $3 million and has funded 25 different scholarships for SAS soldiers, including numerous MBAs, PhDs, and other degrees at a range of top institutions. In fact, Yingers, right after we uh, finish up this podcast, I'm actually meeting with a current SAS soldier who wants some career advice and he's completing his MBA. Well, Chris, that was amazing. But let's turn now to talk about housing. You've argued that because of a fear of betraying its own fallibility and undermining its prized credibility, that the Reserve Bank of Australia never admits it makes mistakes, which means that culturally it is less likely to learn from them. So when the RBA slashed its cash rate from 4.75% to 1.5% between 2011 and 2016, it repeatedly argued that this would not trigger a re-leveraging of household balance sheets and or a new double-digit house price boom, which is exactly what happened. In fact, Australia's banks had to contend with the biggest bubble in history based on the house price to income ratio and household debt to income ratio which in 2013, your column warned would materialize. 
after Sydney house prices leapt 50%, Phil Lowe was asked whether the RBA's record low interest rates were to blame. He remarkably counted that the cost of capital had little role to play, instead pointing the finger at inert housing supply coupled with robust population growth. So beyond the fact that cheap money was obviously the driver, which motivated our forecast for rapid house price growth between 2013 and 2017, a clear flaw in Lowe's logic was that Sydney had experienced a record building boom that many alleged had led to excess supply. Most embarrassingly for the RBA, two of its top researchers, Trent Saunders and Peter Tulip, published a detailed academic paper shortly thereafter, proving that almost all of the stunning increase in house prices between 2013 and 2017 was indeed attributable to the reduction in mortgage rates. And for the avoidance of doubt, the RBA economists demonstrated that housing supply and population growth had comparatively little influence. Yeah, I agree, Huawei. The RBA is masterful at spinning stories, or so-called narratives. And the truth is that they are often just fairy tales. Or in the case of Lowe's claim, monetary policy did not blow the mother of all housing bubbles. That's just pure BS. And unfortunately, the reality is a lot of journos are reliant on the RBA drip for information, and they're reluctant to call these misdeeds out. So forgive us if, when Lowe says that the most recent RBA rate cuts will not reignite the housing bubble, that our mental reflex is to dismiss this rhetoric as just simply non-credible. What we know with certainty is that the RBA's research, which Ying, uh, as you referenced, finds that a permanent 1% reduction in real mortgage rates will lift house prices by an unbelievable 28%. So there's certainly an upside, a lot of upside following these recent cuts. In April 2019, um, listeners will recall that when house prices were still falling, we called the end of the correction and forecast a 5 to 10% increase in prices in the 12 months following the second RBA uh, rate cut and Sydney and Melbourne prices have indeed stopped falling. That price uh, depreciation discontinued in the month of May. They started rising again in June. And in July, CoreLogic, the housing index data provider, reported that its five capital city home value index rose for the first time since September 2017. Now, we estimate that Sydney and Melbourne prices have jumped a solid 0.5 to 1% off their 2019 lows. And we think this recovery will accelerate as cheaper mortgage rates grip and the banking regulators' easier interest rate serviceability tests expand purchasing power further. Um, I must say, it's a source of endless mirth and amusement that perma-housing bears like Steve Keen and that dude that I debated uh, this year, John Adams, consistently get the housing cycle totally wrong. And you can actually find that debate on YouTube. I think we've had to date about 125,000 plus views. So I wouldn't be surprised years if the housing market actually starts to boom again and the capital gains over the next 12 months are actually closer to the upper bound of our forecast range. And Chris, from a credit quality perspective, this is good news for the Aussie banks. We are forecasting a gradual decline in mortgage arrears and an increase in prepayment speeds. 
After climbing between 2014 and 2018, our own compositionally adjusted hedonic index of Australian mortgage arrears has flatlined more recently. In a world of expensive assets, bonds issued by Aussie banks continue to look cheap and are still trading at many multiples of their 2007 levels in credit spread terms. Yeah, it's funny you should mention that, Yingers, because I have had a long-held hypothesis that because of the enormous bias in super fund portfolios to equities and the comparatively tiny allocations to cash and fixed income, that the outright credit spreads available on bonds issued in Australia are attractive by global standards. And importantly, this is before accounting for hedging costs and the cross-currency basis, which really kind of twists and transforms that, that analysis. So to test this hypothesis, um, my quants actually recently took 3,000 senior-ranking investment-grade bonds issued by banks in Aussie dollars, Canadian dollars, Swiss francs, Euro sterling, yen, and US dollars between 2015 and today. And employing a multi-factor regression model, they quantified the time series differentials in the outright credit risk premium paid above the local floating rate benchmark after controlling for the bond's features, including their rating, maturity issuer, and other variables. Now, the findings, importantly, were clear and consistent. Outright credit spreads in Australia are indeed much wider than what you find for identical bonds in other currencies before hedging back into Aussie dollars. Whereas Australia was the cheapest bond market on this basis, Japan and the Eurozone tended to have the most expensive spreads. We then took uh, OEC data on each pension system's exposures to bonds and found a statistically significant negative relationship between the credit spread issuers pay and the local market pension system's fixed income portfolio weights across both time and markets. So the more a pension system allocates to credit, generally speaking across markets and across time, the tighter credit spreads will be, that makes sense. And obviously the converse is true here in Australia where um, you know, we've got comparatively little allocations to credit and therefore internationally high, high outright spreads. Now, Chris, let's move on to discuss Magellan's revolutionary new listed investment trust, which is a game changer for the stockbroking, financial planning and funds management industries as the first such product that does not pay brokers and advisors conflicted sales commissions that can precipitate mis-selling crises. Industry chatter suggests this move has already resulted in one major bank refusing to distribute LITs or listed investment companies, LICs, that pay conflicted remuneration. It could eventually drive reputationally sensitive banks to offer these products for free only when they determine it is in their client's best interest to do so, which is how financial advice should work. Magellan's commission-free precedent further begs a profoundly important question of its peers. If Magellan can raise money purely on its product's merits without the need to pay conflicted remuneration, why can't they do the same thing? This is, after all, the way the entire funds management industry works outside of LICs and LITs. So, the future of financial advice laws, otherwise known as FOFA, were enacted with bipartisan support in 2012, primarily to ban all payments of conflicted sales commissions by fund managers to people who are advising retail customers. 
For some bizarre reason in 2014, the coalition decided to grant LICs and LITs an exemption from the FOFA laws, which has unsurprisingly resulted in fund managers shifting their capital raising efforts away from normal FOFA regulated channels towards the FOFA exempt ASX market. At the time, the coalition was hell-bent on diluting FOFA's consumer protections to allow vertically integrated institutions to pay their salaried advisors' sales bonuses for pushing in-house products to customers receiving the most sacrosanct personal advice, which thankfully was rejected by the Senate in no small part because of this, you know, Chris, your constant criticisms in the AFR. So since the 2014 exemption for LICs and LITs, the value of money in these vehicles has more than doubled as fund managers race to raise as much of this highly lucrative permanent capital as they can by paying commissions of up to 3% to push their wares. This is despite evidence that more than half of all LICs and LITs end up trading below the value of their net tangible assets. Time after time, fund managers that have not previously raised much, if any, uh, capital via FOFA-regulated channels have secured hundreds of millions in days via an LIT on the ASX. And these are often the most complex products, including leveraged hedge funds, junk bond funds, and leveraged debt products, with extremely high fees that have not been subject to any real negotiation because those promoting them are conflicted via the payment of huge commissions. Globally, Australia's FOFA-free LIT market is the talk of the town, and many big fundies are now rushing to exploit it. Yeah, sad but true, Yingers. Um, And in response to Magellan's decision, I was actually contacted by an experienced advisor um, who wrote to me and said that, quote, I thought it might be useful to hear about my experiences with LICs and LITs within our firm. And he said, what I've seen happen time and time again is the partners of the firm bid for a large amount of an LIC or LIT placement to maximize their commissions. Inevitably, he says, it's tough to find clients who require additional exposure in that space. So there's always uh, an excess or surplus uh, commitment that they've claimed. And he continued that the result is advisors finding any possible client they can flog part of the placement to. He concludes that, quote, it's a broken system when advisors are trying desperately to fit an investment product to a client rather than picking products that are suitable for their clients and which are selected on the basis that they're in their client's best interests. So it's pretty disappointing. And is, unless something is done about this problem, I think FOFA is de facto dead and all serious fund managers are going to shift their capital raising programs to the ASX where they can pay as much conflicted remuneration as they want. Now, of course, the beneficiaries of these commissions are going to argue that they're no different to the fees companies pay on the ASX when issuing shares, bonds or hybrids. There is, however, a fundamental difference between a company raising working capital for a productive operating business by issuing equity and debt or combinations of equity and debt like hybrids, which is globally permitted and accepted all around the world in contrast to a fund manager seeking money for a speculative strategy that is not a business, but rather an investment product. I think the good news, however, 
is that the best fund managers and advisors are doubtless going to try to emulate Magellan's you know, gold standard efforts to furnish clients with solutions that are absolutely in their best interests and free from all conflicts. A key conclusion of Kenneth Haynes during his Royal Commission was, quote, there must be recognition that conflicts of interests and conflicts between duty and interests should be eliminated rather than managed in the battle between a best interest duty and greed almost always the latter wins out now chris another systematic regulatory risk we have relentlessly drawn attention to has been asics attempts to sue westpac for breaching australia's responsible lending laws after detailed legal due diligence, we argue that ASIC and UBS's John Mott were both misguided in their claims that Westpac did not comply with these laws. And we've previously showed that Mott had in fact confused Westpac's separately alleged non-compliance with APRA's lending guidelines and ASIC's entirely independent claim that Westpac had failed to comply with the responsible lending laws. As predicted, ASIC's case has now been comprehensively dismissed twice by the federal court's brilliant Justice Nye Perham, who is incidentally slated to adjudicate an opportunistic class action suit being brought on the same subject. Good luck. This is immensely important for investors in bank-issued shares and bonds and residential mortgage-backed securities, otherwise known as RMBS. Had ASIC triumphed, the enforceability of every single home loan written by Westpac and potentially other banks could have been called into question, eviscerating the collateral protecting these assets. One important finding from this case is that there is nothing intellectually or legally wrong with lenders relying on the household expenditure measure, otherwise known as HEM, when assessing whether a loan is suitable for a borrower, as we've argued contrary to the popular consensus. Justice Perham found that declared living expenses are unlikely to be informative of the minimum level of living costs that borrowers have to incur when repaying a loan while not enduring substantial hardship, which is a key legal test. The value of the HEM is precisely that it provides an independent benchmark of what these minimum living costs are likely to be. It is also a benchmark that cannot be gamed or manipulated by borrowers who could reduce their living costs in the period before applying for a loan. Yes, Ying Yi, while there is certainly wisdom in crowds, the consensus is not always right. Late last year, the media, you know, they made much of the fact that a large global fund manager was exiting the major bank's senior bonds because this fund manager felt these securities were at a much higher risk of being downgraded. And this view was in turn predicated on the view that it was forecasting several years of house price declines. In fact, another 10 percentage points of declines after we'd already had um, the best part of you know, 8 to 10 percentage points of falls between circa mid-2017 and late-2018. Listeners might recall that after we'd forecast a 10% correction in national house prices way back in April 2017, when prices were still rising, and crucially, well before uh, any mainstream analyst or this manager, we arrived at a um, very, very different conclusion apropos the major banks' senior bonds earlier this year. Our view was that the housing bust, which crucially was actually credit positive, not negative, uh, insofar as it reduced financial stability risks, was about to end and would be quickly followed by 
robust house price appreciation. And we further predicted that the major bank's senior bonds would be upgraded, not downgraded, to AA minus stable, which was, we now know, duly delivered by Standard & Poor's uh, last month. Now, the key to formulating these insights is independent first principles thinking that respects well-informed consensus, but also maniacally questions it. Now, big shout out to all you listeners for the circa 8,000 downloads of the podcasts um, that we've done, the nine episodes thus far, which has been a really welcome uh, development. And we appreciate profoundly the opportunity to engage with you all. I also appreciate the fact that so many of you have reached out with questions and comments and feedback. So please do email us at info at coolabarcapital.com. Would love to hear your thoughts. The best educations we often receive are actually from our own clients. And so we'd love to swap ideas with anyone who wants to engage intellectually on the topics that we've canvassed today. So thank you again and have a good time until we rejoin you next time. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.